Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Morning, it's a real pleasure for me to be back here again with you. Uh, I see you are there by faith because I can't see any of you clearly. <laughs> but it really is a pleasure for me to be here to sit. You know, we're five weeks since Mother's Day and we're one week away from Father's Day. For many people, both of those days are days for celebration for thanksgiving, for honoring their parents. Even those who may be grieving the loss of a parent recently because their memories are filled with honor for which they're thankful. They are still able to celebrate. And so the fifth commandment, which we're looking at today, Exodus 20, 12, which says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you is no problem. But for others, whether with one or both parents, it's a different situation. Either it's a non-existent relationship, maybe it's been a difficult relationship, maybe even an abusive one. And so your feelings range all the way from neutrality at best through hostility and maybe even to deep-seated anger at the injustices that you felt you've experienced. And so this fifth commandment is at best unwelcome and at worst it is almost inconceivable for some of you. That's totally understandable. And yet, as Pastor John reminded you in the very first sermon in this series, that these are not ten suggestions we are looking at, they are ten commandments. And they were not given just to make us nicer people. Rather, they are a reflection of the very heart of God himself, a God who gives and a God who longs for freedom for us. They were not given so that we might earn favor with God and acceptance, but rather that we might enjoy a relationship that we already have with him by grace and to remove the roadblocks for the freedom that he wants us to live in. And that is true of this particular commandment as well, regardless of the kind of relationship that you've had with your parents. And so my hope, at least one of my hopes, is that for all of us, you'll be a little bit prepared for next week than you might have been otherwise. I want to make a couple of general observations before we get into the nuts and bolts because I want to make this message as practical as possible. The ideals and the principles are important because they are foundational. But we need to go beyond that to how do we actually build upon them. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was not a radical early church leader and wrote many letters to churches in uh, all over what we approximately modern-day Turkey. In, in a letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus called the Ephesians Church, he wrote in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Honor your father and mother, so he repeats the commandment. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. First and foremost, right away, he reminds us that it's, there's, it's continued relevance. We can't just simply dismiss that as something that was all Old Testament stuff. It's just as relevant for now. But then he makes a couple of comments and adds something. He, he comments that this is the first commandment with a promise. And so to the promise in the Old Testament that it may go well, that you may live long in the land, he adds the comment that it may go well with you. The fact that this is the first commandment with a promise is one way of underlining its importance for us. And so I want to make a couple of general observations both about the importance and then the nature of the promise itself. For those of us who live on this side of the cross where land promises are not particularly relevant anymore. <clears throat> first of all, looking for, look at its importance. The book that follows Exodus is Leviticus. Leviticus is a 
somebody called it the ABC primer of holiness. And in the 19th chapter of Leviticus, which amplifies the Ten Commandments, he says this, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols. Pastor John also reminded you at the beginning of this series that one of the main reasons for this service is that in, in a time where God seems to have pouring out his blessing upon this congregation and you learned all about that in the spiritual gift series that he was also calling you to be a holy people. And it's interesting that the first expression of holiness in this list is every one of you shall revere his father and mother. He puts it before the Sabbath commandment and even puts it before, I am the Lord your God, do not turn to idols. And you looked at those commandments already. And so obviously that's one way of immediately emphasizing the crucial importance of this commandment as we become holy people. And then the same thing is true in the New Testament from a negative perspective. The Apostle Paul, he writes in another letter, this time to a young pastor in in Ephesus, he says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedience, for the ungodly and the sinners, and for the unholy and the profane. My goodness, look at six adjectives that describe unholiness. Lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. And guess what's the first illustration of this kind of ungodliness? Those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, for sexually immoral, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So dishonoring parents, in this case a rather extreme example of striking them, is is a rather dramatic illustration of, of, of a life of unholiness. And Paul calls this sound doctrine which reflects the very gospel itself. So both positively in Leviticus and negatively in 1 Timothy, he underlines and emphasizes for us that this is important. Now what about the promise itself? As I said, land promises are completely irrelevant to us today. Certainly Paul was writing to Gentiles who were living all over the Roman Empire at that time who who were not particularly living in, in what we would call the promised land. And so Paul modifies that by saying, so that it may go well with you. What did Paul have in mind when he said, if you obey this particular commandment, it will go well with you. No, we don't know. He doesn't spell it out. But one thing we do know for sure, there is probably nothing that affects our adult lives. Our relationships in marriage, in parenting, our relationships at work and relationships in general, there's almost nothing that affects that as the kind of relationships that we had in our family of origin especially with significant authority figures and especially with parents. And this is true whether that relationship has been characterized by honor or by dishonor. So just a couple of observations. Important and it is related to life itself. And as we go through the rest of this message, I want to show you various ways in which this life promise begins to come to the forefront. Because that's really what's at stake. Fullness and abundance life. Now the applications are widespread and a 40 minute message that I have, I can't even begin to hope to touch on all your individual situations. So I would encourage you to listen carefully to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to discern the touch points between the examples that I give and where you might be 
to so that you can seek god both for the wisdom that you need to apply this to your situation and the power and the strength that you're going to need to continue to live this out as well and hopefully you will do it as a community together in your home groups and others teaching and admonishing and helping and strengthening one another all right here we go so first of all honoring parents by submitting to their authority and caution now submission is a bad word in our culture so i need to define that for you it actually based on two words which means order and under what what does submission really mean see almost everything that has been accomplished significantly in this world has been accomplished by teams if the raptors pull it off on monday it will not be because of one person although he might have been at the forefront of it people need to come off the bench and score 20 points at a time like ibaka did but we do it as a team together right yeah now members of a team whether it's a surgical team or a mountain climbing team or a football team or whatever all the members are equally valuable as human beings however every team has a leader in order to accomplish the function and so if a player for example rebels against the coach's orders he will be benched or she will be cast out or whatever not because they are of any less important as human beings but when it comes to the accomplishing of a function submission to those who are leading you is important that's what it means to fall into order under someone the people who understand it best are people in the armed forces because they know that life and the success of their mission and the life of others depends upon falling under order that's the essence of it it's it's equality in essence but subordination in function because a common mission is at stake when it comes to parents it that functions best when a father and a mother are working together to mobilize and shape an entire family so that gifts and temperaments and passions are all harnessed together to accomplish Christ's mission in that world and when parents are leading that way submission is to simply get into order and you do your role well so that together as a family you accomplish your purpose so that that's essentially what it is specifically it means paying attention to their wise teaching and their suggestions for training proverbs tells us what is writing on this it says in chapter 4 verses 1 to 13 listen my son accept what i say and the years of your life will be many so there's the emphasis on life i instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight path and notice the freedom statements here when you walk your steps will not be hampered when you run you will not stumble hold on to instruction do not let it go guard it well for it is your life twice he talks about life and see, see the emphasis on freedom as we obey this particular expression of honoring parents now how exactly does this submission translate into life First of all it results in authority in our own lives. In the gospels we read the story about a Roman centurion who had a son I think that or a servant that was not well. And so he comes to Jesus and says will you please heal my son? And he said to Jesus you don't even need to come just give the order and everything will be fine. because and you know the reason he says he says i'm a man under authority and therefore i give orders now you and i wouldn't have written the text that way we would have said i'm a man in authority therefore i give orders no the roman centurion understood something important he said i'm a man under authority therefore i give orders his authority comes from submission to those in authority over him that's why when we walk in submission to those in legitimate authority over us we experience authority in our own lives 
King Saul was, was the first king of Israel. It was a failed experiment in kingship. Part of the problem Saul had was he kept rebelling against Samuel, the prophet's authority in his life. And as a result of this, unholy, demonic influences started coming into his life. And in that context, Samuel says, rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. In other words, as we rebel against those in legitimate authority over us, we actually open ourselves up to demonic influence because the essence of the satanic mindset is one of rebellion against authority. And so we not only get authority in our lives by proper submission, we get protection in our lives as well. And then also blessing. I remember a young man who became a Christ follower uh, from a non-Christian background. He was in high school at that time. His parents' reaction was very negative because they felt that he was maybe going into a cult and leaving their true church. After he graduated, he wanted to become, go to Bible college. You know, you know that's something we'd all celebrate. But his father said, no, I want you to go to university. I want you to get a degree and I want you to join the, the family business. I, along with a couple of other wise counselors, encouraged him to set aside his plans for Bible college and submit to what his father wanted Especially he was not a believer and he was not asking him to do anything that was contrary to God's word. And so however reluctantly he changed his plans and went to university. The blessings have continued to come today 15 years later. He graduated. He took over. He worked in the family business. He's become a key uh, factor in that business. God led him to marry a godly young woman. He's a father to three beautiful daughters. He's an elder in his church right now and his parents are coming along in their journey to Christ as well. All started out because he submitted to the obedience of even non-Christian parents. And those blessings continue sometimes even after we've left home and are no longer under their direct influence. My wife and I have had the wonderful joy of being married for almost 48 years. This is October will be 48 years. But it may, not, it may have been otherwise. Because three years before we actually got married in 1971, our plan was to get married. And I remember writing to my, I was in MIT at that time in between my first and second year. I wrote a long letter home to my parents explaining that this was our plan. And Sham's father wrote to my dad, uh, because that's kind of the way it works in, in our culture, even in a marriage is not arranged. And to both of our utter surprise, my, my father wrote back and said, absolutely not. We cannot give blessings to this marriage. Uh, primarily my mother. And I think the main reason was she knew that once I got married, I probably would never come back from my Christian faith. I'd been a Christian four years at that time. And maybe she entertained the hope that so long as I was still single and unattached, I might come back to the, to the, to my, the faith of my parents. So this was a real shock to me and a real heartbreak. And yet one of my mentors in Boston had already taught me about the importance of submission to those in authority over you so long as they're not asking you to do something that is not biblically wrong. Uh, wrong. And Sham, for her part, her mother had always told her, make sure you go into a home that you're really welcome if you're going to get married. So we broke up. Through a long series of circumstances that I won't take today, three years later, we did get married. And this time, nothing had changed on the outside. When I sh told my parents about this, we got an unqualified blessing and my mother actually wrote a letter welcoming Sham into our home. What was really significant was it was those three years in which some of my rapidest growth as a Christian where Jesus really became number one in my life happened. We didn't know it at that time, but my parents would end up spending almost 20 years 
of their life living with us what would that have looked like if we had gone into that marriage in rebellion against their wishes so blessing continues authority protection blessing these are all the life expressions that flow out of submission to god a legitimate authority now i mentioned the fact that my parents uh, lived with us for that long that takes me to the second dimension of honoring parents that is honoring parents by caring for them as they grow old it, it was a given in jesus culture and yet even there especially some of the religious authorities had found a way to circumvent this and jesus heads that head on he says this in mark chapter 7 verses 6 to 13 and jesus continued you guys have a clever way of rejecting god's law in order to uphold your own teaching for moses commanded respect your father and mother and if you curse your father and mother you are to be put to death but you teach that if people have something they could use to help their father and mother but they say this is korban which means it belongs to god they are excused from helping their father and mother in this in this way the teaching you pass on to others cancels out the word of god they had set up an elaborate kickback scheme where stuff that they gave into the temple would come back into their back pockets as well so this was a way of avoiding legitimate responsibility today we don't have religious rationalizations for this but one of my observations has been many many parents spend the last years of their life with very little involvement of their children caring for parents as they age is a critical dimension of honoring them but it's also a tremendously demanding task the details as i said will differ, will differ from place to place but here's the shape it took in our lives sham lost her parents when she her mother when she was 27 and her father when she was 32 they both died young and so that was not her parents we didn't even need to face this issue it was a different situation with my parents See from the time I was born in India till the time I left at the age of 22 to come to Boston I always had a grandmother in my home she was living with us when I was born and she lived for those 22 years there never was a time in my life when there wasn't my grandmother in my home being cared for by my parents and while the details in Sham's family was different she had her maternal grandmother come for several months in a year to live with them and so for both of us caring for our parents as we grow older grew older was a very deeply ingrained culture so in 1992 and my parents had visited us on a couple of occasions before that when my brother with whom my parents were living moved to england uh, and they were not allowed to go there with them they emigrated to canada came they came in 1992 my father lived for a couple more years he died in 94 and my mother lived with us till 2009 so almost 17 or 18 years with us and while both of us agreed to do this the cost was quite significant there was the obvious loss of privacy in our home but sham had to bear the brunt of it much more than i did now i'm going to be honest and share a few things that made it a challenge so i want to preface it by saying there were many things for which i honor my mother for some reason when i was only 5 years old god gave her a deep desire that her son should learn english little did she know that i'd be spending most of my adult life talking in english to english speaking people she taught me mathematics and logic and geometry and and that dimension of my mind that i use so much in my ministry was all shaped by my mother's faithfulness and my own wife has written on letters to my mother on two or three occasions thanking god for whatever she built into me because she's been blessed that way so in that context of honor i also need to be honest about the challenge that it posed when she lived with us 
See, the kitchen was a major problem. My mother got her identity from cooking and seeing people enjoy her cooking. I mean, it was an obsession with her. But when you start cooking Indian food in hermetically sealed houses in North America, <laughs> yeah, guess what? I don't need to tell you what happened, right? It gets into your clothes. It goes all over the house. And thirdly, my mother was in a culture where you got up at 6.30 in the morning and got all your cooking by 10 in the morning. So all this happened early in the morning as well with a lot of noise in the kitchen, with stainless steel dishes, you know. Talking about dishes, my mother did something else. She would just rearrange dishes in the kitchen so when Sham wanted to look for something, she couldn't find it anymore. <laughs> this didn't happen for two weeks or three months. It happened for nearly 20 years, or the initial part of it anyway. Further problems, not only was the kitchen taken over, she felt marginalized because you see, I was a firstborn male and in Indian culture, as in many other Asian cultures, firstborn males are like gods. And my mother was only 19 when I was born. So, so it, was, it was not a healthy relationship from her side. So I was a golden boy who could do no wrong. Every morning when we came down, the dishes were, the table was set for breakfast, but just for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if I was coming home for dinner, the food was freshly cooked, otherwise it was leftovers. <laughs> I mean, what does this do to my wife's self-image? You know, what does it do? She's marginalized, right? So there was a takeover of the kitchen. It was a lonely, lonely battle for her. I couldn't even come close to understanding this. She said, Sunday it would be like somebody coming in and every day rearranging your studies so you couldn't find your books and your files on your computer. Oh, that hit home, right? <laughs> and so we both struggled. What does honor look like in a culture like, in this situation? What does it mean to honor without enabling? And as we learned, we kept growing over the years. This thing continued on one occasion, the emotional pressure for Sham got high enough that I actually had to say to my mother, you need to go for two years. Now, it was unthinkable in our culture to send her to a senior citizen's home. There was a network of South Indian family and friends that she had here. I would have been such a shameful thing that neither one of us even considered that. But my brother lived in Singapore and having your mother go and live with another brother, that was no problem at all. So I, I, basically, I basically said to my brother, you got to take her off our hands for two years and I told my mother, you have to go. That was a huge growth in emotion for me because I, I, didn't, you don't, I didn't like to do that to my mother. You see, that was my problem. I needed to get much more confrontational so I had to learn to do things like that. And Sham, for her part, slowly began to confront my mother more and more about in the things in the kitchen and her behavior. And gradually, ever so slowly, she began to change. And by the latter part of her visit, uh, she would ask for permission before she did everything. And even in terms of being made to feel honored welcome, when my mother moved to Singapore in 2009 because the cold was too much here, when we would Skype on a regular basis, she would only talk to Golden Boy for a few minutes and then she'd say, where's Sham? I want to talk to her. <laughs> and on one occasion when I was going over to Singapore, I was actually speaking somewhere in the Far East and I was going to Singapore to visit my mother and my brother. And she said, well, Sham, why don't you come? She said, well, it's, it's quite expensive. She said, no, I'm going to pay for you. The, so gradually over the years, Sham began to feel actually valued and loved as well. How did she pull this off? How did she do this? Because many, many times people in our church would say, I don't know how you do this. I could never do this. I don't know how. Yeah, that's exactly the last thing she needed to hear, right? But she kept hearing that. 
but it drove her to God like nothing before. And in God's presence, she learned to vent her negative emotions. She would pour out her heart to God and her frustrations. She would pray for daily grace that was needed to respond in a manner that was loving, especially because she was an unbeliever living in a Christian home. And then she would rise from those encounters to serve them again. Because I worked outside the home, she worked inside the home. She took them to the many, many doctor's appointments, to numerous other um, places where she needed a ride because neither one of them obviously drove as well. And slowly, God began to shape within her her primary calling in life, which is an intercessor. Today she will tell you, and she will be here for the second service, and I'm saying all this to you with her permission. Today she will say to you, I used to ask God, why is this my lot in life? She says, today I say, no, this is my inheritance. Because today her life of intercession is blessing the whole next generation of six grandchildren, two children and two sons and daughters-in-law that we have with us. By the way, my dad became a follower of Jesus two years before, or two months before he died as well. Life, life, life. Yeah. As I said, that's our story. Yours may be different, but whatever it is, honoring by caring for them when they get older is both a crucial dimension of honoring them, but also a very difficult and demanding one. And you will not pull this off without regular continued communion with Jesus. Now, in both of our cases, we grew up in our church, younger age, feeling loved and cared for by our respective parents. What if that wasn't the case though? What if parents were actually dishonorable? Either they were absentee parents or emotionally absent parents or maybe verbally, physically and even sexually abusive. How do you dishonor parents who are actually dishonorable? Let me list four or five quick principles to keep in mind. As I said, you listen to the ones that intersect your life and then I want to tell you one more story. First of all, we are called to honor the position and not the process. It is logically impossible to honor someone who is dishonorable. And we are not called to do that. Jesus did not speak honorably about the Pharisees. They were dishonorable people. What we are called to do is to honor the position even when the person is not honorable. We respect the office because of the principle of authority. Secondly, you've been commanded to forgive. It's not that Jesus did not give this to us as an option, forgiving people who've hurt us. The reason is because he knew something that we either never knew or missed. You see, we, are, we think that when we refuse to forgive somebody that has hurt us, we've got them on our hook, whereas actually they have you on their hook. You're the one that's in bondage. It's your freedom that's involved. Jesus knew that. That's why he didn't make forgiveness optional. Thirdly, this commandment too is for our freedom. Remember that all of the commandments were given for our freedom that we might run unhampered in life. Fourthly, forgiveness can take and does take a lot of time and hard work. So please don't believe the forgive and forget crowd. It doesn't work that way. Forgive and forget is nowhere in the Bible. It said it takes time to work through. I had a friend of mine, he actually was a fellow elder with me for many years at Rexdale and then an elder when I became a pastor he was shot in a hunting accident by his future brother-in-law a few months before he was scheduled to get married. And he was paralyzed in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And he said to me, Sundar, I thought I had forgiven my brother-in-law, he said. 
but it wasn't until I hit my uh, middle, major midlife crisis that I realized I hadn't forgiven him at all. He said, you cannot forgive somebody fully until you have counted the cost fully. It is only after you've counted and articulated the cost that you can actually forgive. So grieve, grieve the losses, grieve the pain, grieve the hurts that you've experienced at the hands of dishonorable parents. Pray those ugly emotions to God. That's why the Psalms are given to us. I think I might have mentioned this one of my previous times I was here. The number one topic in the Psalms is God. Not, no surprise. You know what the number two topic is? Enemies. Why in Israel's prayer book is so much ink given to enemies? Because that's what life is like. We are hurt by lots of people. It can be including our parents in some cases. And so we need training in expressing those ugly emotions. We're not supposed to stuff the emotions because they hurt us too. Because they'll either come out in explosive anger later on or be turned inward destructively. We're called to express our emotions but to express them in God's presence. And the Psalms are training ground for that. So grieve the losses, pray your ugly emotions and allow God to slowly work your heart, to move you from hatred and anger to suffering and lamentation and eventually to redemption. And then for some of you, professional help may be needed. Inner healing prayers, spiritual freedom, deliverance ministry, those are all things that in this church you practice and are taught in that. Take it when you need it. So those are some of the principles you need to keep in mind. And eventually, finally, you need to initiate a reconciliation process. Let me tell you a story of another young man. I have his permission to share this as well. As a child, he grew up without any verbal affirmation at all. Phrases like, I love you, I'm proud of you, were never once uttered by parents, especially his father. And, and these are critical, critical uh, statements, kinds of affirmation to build a sense of identity and worth. Secondly, he told me there was no instruction or training in how to handle emotions, especially negative emotions. All he was told was no tears, stiff upper lip. That was the message that was given. And so the net result of all of this was a lack of self-confidence, which combined with his deeply introverted personality made vulnerability in relationships and especially in marriage very, very difficult for him. The road back began first of all with his own conversion. When he became a follower of Jesus and he was introduced to grace and forgiveness, first of all by receiving it from Jesus. The second key element came when he read Peter Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And one of the things Scazzaro talks about in that book is, is a write a drawing up or sketching a family genogram, which basically traces back relational patterns for two decades, to, for two generations, your parents and your grandparents at least, and maybe one before that if you can. And to look at all the patterns of relationships, of conflict management and things like that in there, to identify patterns that have been passed on to you. And as he began to do this, he began to understand how his past, especially the genogram, had affected his life. And so there was increased recognition and self-awareness. That was the next step in the process. And slowly as he began reading and looking at the understanding the effect of his own life, there was a growing conviction that he needed to talk to his father about these things. A few years passed and he and his family were back home in another country where his parents lived. And there, during that time, a few more incidents happened, either comments that were made or incidents that happened that just further reminded him of the difficult past that he had. And so he realized that this was the moment. So he sees that Kairos moment, recognizing that moment, 
that opportunity to talk. But he prepared himself for that. He prepared himself with extensive journaling. And in that time, he listed all the positives first. He didn't want to start with the negatives. And he said, I listed things like the fact that my dad always supported me in whatever I did. If there were financial needs, he gave those needs as well. He taught me the importance of the ethic of hard work. And he also modeled ethics in general for me. So he listed all of these things first. And then long conversations with God in prayer and with his spouse so that he could get clarification on some of these ideas and get strength to do the work. And then finally he initiated a conversation with his father. And he said it was really interesting. He said I found even the, he found even the positives hard to take. <laughs> Because you see when you're not used to giving positives you find it difficult to receive them as well. So every time this young man tried to sh uh, share with his father the things that he had done well He, being uncomfortable, this was alien territory for him, he'd quickly dismiss it, okay, okay, that's nice, let's move on to something else. So he actually had to stop his dad and said, listen, listen, listen. And he reinforced these positives. And then he moved from there after that to the other issues in his life. He said, I was so glad I had notes with me, I didn't rely on my own memory at that particular time. He even mentioned the recent incidents and his father because he began with the positives received the negatives very well was able to give him some counter perspectives on some of the recent incidents that also helped and it, the conversation took the relationship to a whole new level and this young man said to me he said if I lived closer to home in the country where my parents are I could probably have many many more conversations with them. And then lastly two years after this conversation their parents his parents celebrated their 60th anniversary And he was invited by his three other brothers, none of whom are Christ followers, and the parents aren't Christ followers as well. He was invited to come and pronounce the blessing upon his parents on the occasion of their 60th anniversary. So this was one man's journey in a difficult situation where he didn't feel he could honor a dishonorable father to get back and initiate that process. Now, what if the father's reaction had been different? What if he had lashed out in anger as he could have? That's okay because you're not responsible for their wholeness. You're responsible for your own wholeness. Your freedom and my freedom fortunately does not depend upon anybody else's obedience. But it does depend upon our obedience. As you go through this process, you will walk about in freedom. You just have to release them to come. So, those are three things we looked at. Honoring parents by submitting to their authority and cautions. By caring for their needs as they age. By blessing the dishonorable. And then lastly, and with that we're finished, what do you do? What do you do when you have to obey Christ clearly and your parents don't have anything to do with that? For me, that happened when I became a follower of Jesus at the age of 17. Now, you know, you don't have to ask Jesus whether it is God's will to commit to him as Christ's follower. That's clear. That's central. And my parents were from a Hindu background and that was something that was anathema. So what do you do? What do you, how do you honor parents when you have to disobey them clearly against their expressed wishes and commandments? You know, I was bold and I was brash at the age of 17. Brashness masqueraded as courage when I told my parents about my decision to follow Jesus. I wish, I wish those people who had led me to Christ had also taken a few moments to point out to me, but Sundar, you need to do it very carefully. You need to realize how much grief this is causing your parents. You need to realize 
the heartbreaking pain and agony that parents will feel or might feel in a decision like this you need to express that grief you need to let them know that you're heartbroken because you're having to disobey them and then you need to bend over backward to serve them as best as you can no one taught me those things as so any any young person here today who's come to Christ from a non-christian background you need more than just boldness you need an honorable way in which to disobey them and so I'll just simply add this disobeying people at Jesus clear command with a servant heart full of grief so how do we pull this off in the same section in Ephesians where Paul mentions this commandment he precedes it by saying keep on being filled with the spirit of god speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making music in your heart and do this all out of reverence for jesus thanks for joining us to connect to the ministries of c4 visit c4church.com